All right, we're talking about the book of John and looking at the introduction to the Word of God. The Word that became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I love that, that idea. And we're, we're kind of being introduced to this gospel as we take a look at it. And last we look, last week we looked at how this gospel is different than the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where they tell the story extra, extra, read all about it. Here's Jesus Christ, John later in his life, um, in my vision of what I would perceive to be the past. John, the pastor of the church of Ephesus, would have been preaching the word of God and probably used Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel to relate his story. And he would have had them read the message of Jesus Christ. But later on in life, God lays it on the heart of the Apostle John to write a different book. Kind of a personal eyewitness account of how one might believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and have that change your life forever. And everyone, the Holy Spirit, in His wisdom, made every single one of those Gospels be so important to what we can learn about Jesus Christ in their own unique, different way. But this one is more unique than the others. And so I'd like to talk a little bit this morning about how they are unique. Um, a week ago, my son and I, we went to a Penn State football game. And uh, I believe the Hyatts, you guys know Greg Hyatt's a big Penn State football fan. He likes Penn State. And he said, when, on a, when I was on the way home, he said, Pastor Scott, I want to hear lots of examples in church about the Penn State football game. He's not here this morning, so I'm going to talk about Penn State football game because he's not here. And so, but anyways... When I went down there, 104,000 people were there at that football game. You can't even imagine. When I saw that number up on the screen, me and my son were watching the stands like full, slowly fill up and everything. And, and when they would cheer as the football game, the roar that would come into the game, it was like, wow. And there were some, you know, they had the Nittany Lion running around down on the thing, and that was kind of exciting to watch. Let me tell you, tell you, though, if you ever go, bring like earplugs and just like, like, that's what you need. That's the first thing, the first big mistake that I made. But as I was watching that, and as I was sitting there, and I think about 104,000 people, you just look around and the place is full. I, I was, I couldn't help but think about Revelation chapter four that we read this morning. Because guess what? That crowd's going to look like an awful small crowd when we get before the throne of God and all the saints have gathered in worship and we praise the Almighty, the, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, and all the angels, the hosts of heaven. Lord Sabbath is His name. The king of the heavenly armies. And as we as we are there and as that scene plays out, oh, it's going to be. I, 
I'm going to be in my perfect body. I won't need earplugs. I don't have to worry about my ears uh, fading out as people cry out, holy, 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 is, and I'll trade everything for, for to see that moment. But when we see that moment, I mean, I hope you read Revelation chapter 4 and you paid attention to what you're reading. What we read about in Ezekiel chapter 1 last week, it's going to be something that's going to blow our mind away as we see the heavenly host. And I, I, try, to, I try to tell children and adults now, we have a skewed version of, of what heaven is going to look like. And our version, our ver- vision, our view of what heaven is going to look like has been skewed and distorted by this thing called television. And I, I believe that with all my heart. I believe that people, you know, think about temptation and good versus evil and stuff is when they come to a cookie jar and mom has said, there's a cookie in front of you. Don't touch a cookie in the cookie jar. And on one shoulder, is this little angel that has your face and some wings. And it says, Mom said, don't touch the cookie jar. And on the other shoulder, there, there's a there's that bad guy with the tail and the pitchfork, but he still has your face. And he says, eat the cookie, right? And, 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 and so we have this distorted view. We begin to think about angels in heaven. And we don't picture what the Bible teaches. And a lot of times when we see Bibles in heaven, angels in heaven, angels in the Bible, excuse me, they'd look just like you and me. Like read the Bible. Sometimes you might have a hard time telling the difference. They might walk up to you in the street. As a matter of fact, the Bible does say sometimes you have entertained angels unaware. And so they might look a lot like you and me, but sometimes they don't look like anything you'd ever imagine in your mind, right? There's, there's a number of times in the Bible that we read about these angels called seraphim, cherubim. The phrase living creatures is used. Sometimes they have four wings, they have six wings, they have four faces. And, and you just sit here and you read about them and you're like, I can't even begin to fathom what those things would look like. And I picture standing before the throne of God. And looking down and seeing them and going, what are these things for? And I can remember as I was learning about the Gospels, the four books of Jesus Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Someone teaching me, and it's just blowing my mind, and I've read about this a number of times and have enjoyed this study. Those living creatures and the faces, they have purpose. And those purposes, you know, we can see in the scriptures that Jesus Christ has has been presented in the scripture in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We learn different things about about the character of God. And so, Matt, I'm having troubles here. I know this was working earlier. There we go. But I think, and this isn't original with me, that... Jesus in the gospel is characterized, is visualized by those living creatures. We, we sing a song, cherubim and seraphim falling. you got to picture what that's like. 
The four, the four living creatures, the, the angels of God that have four faces, the face of an ox, the face of a man, the face of an eagle, and the face of the lion. And so what I'd like to do is, as we are being introduced to the Word, I'd like us to first kind of take a picture of us being in heaven, gathered round the throne with a multitude of people worshiping and praising God, and we look there, and, and who knows, this could be tomorrow. We could all be raptured away today, and we could all be standing before the throne of God tomorrow. I believe that Revelation chapter 4, when God says to John, come up here quickly, and he's caught up in the Spirit, right before the tribulation, right after God gets done talking about the church, is a picture of the rapture. And so what we could be doing tomorrow is being standing before the throne of God, praising Him, and we look down and we're going to see these living creatures, these angels, these things, and they're going to look so strange to us. And we're going to go, what are they there for? And I think that one of the purposes is to give praise to Jesus Christ in the Gospels and the way that God has been presented to us. The man, the ox, the eagle, and the lion. And I'd like to, I'm going to put a chart up on the screen. And again, this is all introduction to the Gospel of John. And in this chart, I want to try and explain what I'm talking about. So as we get to the Gospels, there are four Gospels. Each one of them has a theme. And each one of them tells us about the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And I believe that each one of those corresponds to the face of one of those living creatures that stands before the throne of God, praising Him on a daily basis. The first gospel we come to in, in the New Testament that tells us the story of Jesus, one of the synoptic gospels, that is the extra, extra read-all-about-it story of Jesus, is the gospel of Matthew. And the theme of the book of Matthew, quickly, is that Jesus is the King of the Jews. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. You read that book and you see, this is the King of the Jews. This is the King. And then if you were to look at that genealogy, and I know that sometimes you talk to a kid that you're trying to encourage to read the Bible. Bible, all it's got is genealogies. And I say, no, it doesn't. It's not all it has is genealogies. There are some genealogies in there. And sometimes those genealogies teach us a lot of stuff. And some days I know when you read the Bible, you might get to a genealogy and you might be like, and this guy begat that guy and that. But if you look, you could find some interesting things. In the book of Matthew, the genealogy goes back to Abraham. We find out that Jesus is the son of Abraham because he's the Jewish king. Make sense? So, of course, that's where his genealogy would go. Because he, he has the right to sit on the throne of David. And if you're a king, you care about, if you're a prince who's going to become a king, you care about who your father is. That's important. You've got to have the right genealogy. So when we get to that angel standing before the throne of God, I see we see the face of the lion because Jesus is the lion of Judah. Make sense? So you see where I'm going with this? So Matthew is the first gospel. What's the second gospel you find in the New Testament? Mark. And so the theme of Mark is that Jesus is our humble servant. He came to this world to live among us, to serve us, 
and to die for us. He was the servant. So that's the, sometimes they say Mark is the book of action. You know, it's just immediately Jesus went and did that. Immediately because he's a good and faithful, humble servant. So you go read the book of Mark and, and you look for a genealogy and you don't find one. You know, there's not one there. Why? Because he's the what? Humble servant. Does anybody care the genealogy of a humble servant? Most of us in this room are humble servants in our daily routine. Does anybody care who your great-great-great-grandfather was? Probably not. It's not going to let you sit on the throne anywhere. But that doesn't mean you're not important. That doesn't mean that you don't have a job to do before God. And so the face of the angel is an ox because they are the humble servants. You with me? You see how this is working? And so then we get to the next gospel. We've got Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. Luke is the doctor in the Bible. He's writing his books to Theophilus. Dr. Luke. And so as you're reading through the book of Luke, you see, you see Jesus, and he is depicted as the perfect man. One of the things that like I remember, I think about when you get to uh, like Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane and he sweats drops of blood. You know that story? It's found in the book of Luke. And then I always think, of course, Dr. Luke, who's talking about Christ's humanity, would talk about something like that. The Gospels make sense and they are orderly and they teach us a lot about Jesus Christ. So we get to the genealogy of Jesus and the genealogy of Jesus comes after he was born. In Matthew, it's in Matthew chapter 1. In Luke, I believe it's at the end of Luke chapter 2, I believe is where it is, after the Christmas story. And his genealogy goes back to Adam. Because if he's the perfect man, if that's his human substance, Jesus is 100% God, and at the same time he is 100% man. The God became flesh. And so we'd care that he is related to Adam. And so the face of the angel that stands before the throne of God is the face of a man. So we have the lion, the ox, and the man. So we've conquered Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the one that's really important for our topic today is the Gospel of John. The theme of the book of John is that Jesus is the Son of God. That he is 100% God. The theme of this book we talked about last week is to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing we might have eternal life through his name. So the book of Matthew has a genealogy that goes back to Abraham. The book of Mark does not have a genealogy. The book of Luke has a genealogy that goes back to Adam. And the book of John in John chapter 1 in verse 18, the genealogy is directly related to God. Think about the words of John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with, and the Word was, the same was in the beginning with. So we're attaching Jesus Christ, the Word that became flesh, to God. And so the face of the angel is eagle, an eagle. 
Um, I, I personally think that's because um, it'd be disrespectful for uh, angel to have the face of the divine spirit of God. And God is spirit. And so if you're going to think about up, God said, just to remind you, I'm going to give that that angel uh, the face of an eagle. As we look again, as we look at Matthew, we see the kingdom parables with Mark is the action gospel. Dr. Luke wrote about Jesus as the man and John over and over and over again puts Jesus Christ on trial for being God. And he says, picture yourself in a courtroom setting. And standing before you is Jesus. And our job here today is to prove to you that Jesus is God. And you want to know who the, the main attorney is going to be throughout this book? Who is going to call witnesses to the stand? Who is going to get the trial started? Who is going to make his, his message known? Is Jesus Christ. In other words, what I'm saying is, is the world might want to put Jesus Christ on trial today. They might want to tell you that Jesus Christ is not the Son of God, that he's just a good teacher. They might want to tell you that uh, he's not all he's cracked up to be. The main person who put himself on trial 2,000 years ago and he said, test me, try me, and you'll find out the proof that I am God is Jesus Christ. And he did that over and over again in the book of John. And I hope to show you that. So as what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to take this book and I'm trying to organize it. So some of the things that I'm going to do is I'm going to lay out an outline of the book of John for you. I'm going to outline his miracles for you. I'm going to call them signs, not miracles. There are lots of miracles in the Bible not done by Jesus Christ. There are miracles of guys like Moses, Elijah, Elisha. Um, all through the Old Testament, we see miracles. Peter and John perform miracles. That doesn't mean that those guys were the Son of God. But Jesus was the Son of God. And Jesus did countless miracles. But when we get to the Gospel of John, John says, hey, I'm going to choose miracles that I think are important to teach you the fact that Jesus was God. And so he only chooses seven of them. We're going to call them the seven road signs that point like a big flashing sign saying, this guy's different. This guy is God. We're going to, I'm going to outline all the times Jesus stops and says, I am Da, 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 right? Because Jesus is saying, I am the God of the Old Testament. We're going to pause, we're going to stop, and we're going to look at, at all the times somebody's light bulb comes on. I love it in school when all of a sudden a kid's light bulb comes on. They're like, I'm confused, I'm confused. They begin to curl their lip, and then all of a sudden they see it, and they go, I get it. And that smile comes over their face. And the light bulb goes on. And, and I'm, we're going to stop and we're going to look at the times where an apostle, where a woman, where a teacher goes, I get it. Jesus is God. 
I believe it changes their life forever. I'm going to hope that some people through this study will say, I get it. I understand. And I'm also going to stop and I'm going to look at picture words. Words that we use in church on Sunday. That if you were to go out in onto the street and if you were to say that word to someone, I think that they're words that us as Christians should know and should understand. But maybe they're not a word that as we're witnessing that we should try to use to try and convince somebody that the gospel message is for them until they have their eyes open and they can understand what the word is all about. They call them picture words. They paint a picture of grace for us. They let us see what God is at work. And those picture words are going to be words that we sing about in church. We sing songs and and we love them like redeemed. How I love to proclaim it. You love that song? But as we sing that song, what does the word redemption mean? And so the first thing I'm going to do, and another thing that we're going to do through this book, is we're going to paint a graveyard. And we're going to put tombstones in them. On every tombstone, we're going to put an epitaph. And we're going to look at what John says about the people that we find in this book. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at a picture word, incarnation. God takes on flesh. A picture word. That picture comes to us from many places in the word of God. In the book of John, chapter 1 and verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That is why John 1.14 is so important. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. If we were to look at the etymology of the word incarnation, Taking on meat, grabbing on to it, our God became flesh. We get to the book of Philippians. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He took upon himself the form of a servant. He humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The reason for this introduction of the word has to do with the real author, God's omniscience, John the Apostle was not in heaven to see the creation of the world. But God, the Holy Spirit, who gave these words to John, he gives us a picture of what what we're looking at, of, of what would have happened in heaven, in that if we were to look at Jesus Christ, we go back to the beginning and we see him there, the author of creation, the person who holds this all together. He is God in flesh, and that's amazing. It's like we're... Stepping into heaven, getting an insider's look of the sovereign God himself. I think about 
in Genesis. In the beginning was the word, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Right? We go back to Genesis chapter 1 and we get to see the moment of creation. We go to the book of Job and we get that insider's look into what was going on in heaven as Job and Satan have this conversation about Job, Job the just, the man who eschewed evil. He hated, he despised it. And Satan says, he doesn't do that for no reason. You have put that hedge of protection around him. Um, guess what? When, when Job broke the book, he wasn't there. That's divinely inspired look at what God was doing in heaven. In the book of Genesis, when that book was written, that person who wrote the book was not there to see God create the heaven and the earth. As we look at Jesus Christ, no one was there to see the genealogy of Jesus going back to God. And so it's so important. Now, there's something that we see in the Bible. And I know one person that I like talking to about the Bible. He doesn't like this concept, but I think it's a concept that we see over and over and over again through the Bible. It's like we need to pay attention. So many times in the Old Testament, God is trying to shout to us, the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah will soon be here until Jesus is born. And it's like the angels just have to rejoice. The Messiah is here finally. And all through the Old Testament, we see that there's these types of Christ. And there's this one guy that I like to talk to. I say, I say, in the Old Testament, there's all these types. And he's like, I don't like that concept, type of Christ. There's only one Jesus. And I'm like, yeah, I agree with you. There's only one Jesus. But when you look in the Old Testament, you see God like constantly saying, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. He's here. Like, you know, you get a get a picture of a kid. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. He's here. And you get so excited when it happens. And so in John chapter 1 and verse 14, I'd like to compare it to an Old Testament scripture today. In John chapter 1 and verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me, is preferred before me. He was before me. And of his fullness, we have all received in grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten of the Father, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. I'd like us to turn over, and I don't have time to read all two chapters. I'd like us to turn back in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 32. Excuse me, Exodus 33. Exodus 33. In Exodus chapter 32, the children of Israel have done something awful. They have, def they have taken the good name of God and they have disgraced it. By making this golden calf. You remember the story? God gets pretty upset with the children of Israel. Because they have sinned and they have rejected him. 
And God is about to wipe out these people for their, their gross, disgusting sin right after God had brought them out of the land out of the land of Egypt. And then you get to Exodus 33 and 34, and you find the mercy of God in full effect. And so we get to the book of John, and in John chapter 1, mankind is an awful sinner. We have sinned before God, and we do not deserve His grace. We do not deserve His mercy. We deserve to be separated from Him forever. And that's when God has His Son, Jesus Christ, step off of His throne in heaven and come down to live among us. There are lots of things that I notice and I'd like to compare. And again, we don't have time to look at Exodus chapter, to read Exodus chapter 33 and 34, but I encourage you, you to read it. I, I mark, I write in my Bible and like half of Exodus 33 and 34 is highlighted because I, I love this passage of scripture and I think you will too. And I'd like to draw on some comparisons this morning. One of the things that we know and probably you're familiar with, is that in John chapter 1, it says, no one has seen God at any time. And you cannot see God's face. And in Exodus chapter 33, Moses and God are having a conversation. And Moses asks if he could see God's face. God says, no, you cannot see my face and live. But I will hide you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you in my hand and I will pass by. And when I pass by, you will be able to see my backside. And that changed Moses' life forever. And when he came down off the mountain, everyone knew about it. And you'll read about that in Exodus chapters 33 and 34. And so whereas John 1 says, no one has seen God at any time. But when we are looking at Jesus Christ, we see God through Jesus Christ. Just like the people could see the reflection of God as they looked at Moses. Moses reflects God's glory to the people. Just like we read in John chapter 1. That Jesus was the glory of the Father. So now Moses was not the son of God. He was not equal with God. He was 100% man, and that's where it stops. But Moses was a type of Christ. So that when we see Jesus Christ and we see him coming to the world, we'll know that there's something special about him because he was like Moses in Exodus chapter 33. Just greater. That's the book of Hebrews. God's great gift is poured out on his people. And in John chapter 1, the gift of God, the, the gift that is given to us is Jesus Christ. I'd like us to read Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6 this morning. It says in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth. Verse 7 says, Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, 
by no means clearing the, the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Well, well, what we see when we see Jesus Christ, and we just read it in John chapter 1, is that when we see Jesus Christ, we experience God's mercy. We experience His grace, His long-suffering, His love, His forgiveness of sins. And Jesus Christ was a fulfillment of the type of Christ found in Exodus chapter 33 and 34. In Exodus chapter 33 and 34, it also says that God would tabernacle with His people. A tabernacle is the place where God would live and be with the people and reside with them and His presence would be felt. And as the children of Israel are walking through the wilderness, they would take special care to move that tabernacle from place to place. I always try to kind of put together maybe the Sunday school opening with what I'm going to be talking about sun, Sunday morning. And when we were had that quiz this morning, if you'll remember, those of you who were in Sunday school opening, we talked about the curtain of the tabernacle, about how the colors of it and the beauty of it and, and the cherubs that were on it. And that tabernacle was the place right in the between the two cherubs on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the place, the mercy seat, the place where God would be with the people. When Jesus Christ comes to the earth, he chose to, the phrase actually is, to tabernacle among us, to dwell among us, so that wherever we go, we could take Jesus Christ living in our hearts. He will dwell among us, be our God, and we can be His people. What an amazing thing. And we live in the church age where, where we don't have to tear down a tabernacle, carry it around, have an Ark of, the Ark of the Covenant. Jesus Christ has chosen to be our mercy seat by the gift of His blood, which could forgive us of our sins. And He dwelt among us. In Exodus chapter 33, in 34, Moses gives the law. Jesus Christ fulfills the law. In Exodus 33 and 34, Moses is the mediator between God and man. Jesus comes to be the eternal mediator between God and man. So the next time you think about Moses in the wilderness and after the after the moment of the golden calf, and you read those chapters of Scripture, and you see Moses seeing the backside of God's glory and reflecting His glory through the people, think of what Jesus Christ came and did. That was a picture of what Christ would do. As Moses gives the law, think about how Jesus Christ would come to fulfill the law. As God offers the people mercy and grace, the forgiveness of sins, Jesus comes to give us all those things, to bring us grace and truth. Love and mercy. And so when we are introduced to the word. John immediately goes back to Moses. And everything that Moses talks about in Exodus chapter 33 and 34. And he says Jesus is the guy that completed it. He is the guy that fulfilled it. 
He is the Savior of the world. Everything the world has been waiting for is found in Jesus Christ. And today we say everything that the world needs, the forgiveness of sins, the grace, the mercy, and the love can be found in the Word made flesh, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So when you think about that picture word, incarnation, picture God in heaven, standing up, the Son of God, and saying, this place is wonderful, heaven is a great place, but man created in my image is worth it, because I love them. And he stepped down out of heaven, and he said, I'm going to go down there, to tabernacle, to live among them and to bring them mercy, to bring them grace, to fulfill the law, to be their God and so that we can be his people. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, I thank you and I praise you that you sent your son to be born of a woman to take on flesh and to live among us. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to never forget how great of God you are in the things that you have done for us. I pray that you might help us to learn these lessons, the lesson of uh, that Moses in the wilderness was a type of Christ, and how great a gift it was when you sent your Son to live among us and to show us the glory of the Father, full of grace and truth. I thank you and I praise you so much for that gift. You truly are a good God and we thank you and we praise you today for the gift that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.